And today we come to Revelation chapter 12, and I'm quite amazed at the timing of our coming to this particular chapter. Last week we had Mike Bernard from Open Doors describing to us some of the suffering that the Church of Jesus Christ is experiencing in the world right now. And now today we have Mother's Day. In Revelation chapter 12, the Apostle John describes the suffering of the church in his day, and he does so in terms of a mother and her child and a great red dragon. So let's have a look. Revelation chapter 12 from verses 1 through 17. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. This is God's word. Father, we pray that as we look into your word right now, that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would make these words clear to us and that you'd apply them deeply into our hearts and lives too because we ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. How many of you have watched the 1952 movie Singing in the Rain with Gene Kelly and Debbie Reynolds? Okay, there we go. Some of you were there for the premiere. Right. It's a lovely musical romantic comedy that describes the transition from silent movies to talking movies. And Don Lockwood and Lena Lamont have been the stars of numerous silent movies, but the studio's move to talking movies now creates a major problem because while beautiful, Lena has the most irritatingly grating voice. What can they do, especially as their next film is a musical? Lena cannot sing. However, there is a young stagehand called Kathy who can sing, and so they decide to dub Kathy's voice into the film while Lena acts. And the film is a great success. At the movie's premiere, Lena goes onto the stage and takes all of the credit for the success of the film. But while she's speaking in this irritating voice, the crowd call on her to sing. It's now going to be a disaster. The truth is going to be revealed. The studio manager decides to let Lena stay on the stage, and she asks Kathy, who is behind the big red curtain, to sing the song while Lena mouths the words. And the audience is fooled. All is saved. Until... Don Lockwood, who has fallen madly in love with Kathy, lifts the curtain so that the audience can see what is really going on, that actually it is Kathy who is the real star of the movie. The Christians to whom John is writing back in 95 AD were about to go through the most terrible persecution for their faith. They were wondering to themselves, why is this happening? Here in Revelation chapter 12, the Apostle John draws back the curtain to allow his readers to see that whatever political or social or religious reasons for the persecution, the reality is that there is a deep spiritual battle going on behind the persecution of the church. Ultimately, the church suffers because of the rage of Satan. Revelation 12 consists of three scenes, and we'll look at them one at a time before moving to the central verses of this chapter, the voice from heaven that gives the significance and the application of this passage to our own lives today. So firstly, scene one, verses one to six, the woman, the dragon, and the child. John says, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. Who is this magnificent woman? Well, actually, her identity is linked to the identity of her child. In verse 5, we're told she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. It's a quotation from Psalm 2, one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament, a messianic psalm. The psalm celebrates God installing his king on earth, but it's clear that it looks beyond any earthly king to the Messiah, to the Lord Jesus. You'll notice that while the woman is a sign and the dragon is a sign, John doesn't say that the child is a sign. It's an actual child, a person, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So if the child is Jesus, does this mean that the mother is Mary? Well, while Mary is an important figure in Scripture, and blessed among women, as Elizabeth says, the superlative way in which this lady is described suggests that no single individual human figure fits the description. John says she was clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, a crown of twelve stars on her head. Does that sound familiar to us at all? Remember, John's expecting that we've read our Bibles. And in, back in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph the dreamer says to his 11 brothers, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. The descendants of Joseph and his 11 brothers would eventually form the 12 tribes of Israel. It seems that this lady then represents the nation of Israel. But there's a broader reference too, because in verse 17 we read about the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That can only be a description of the church. And so taking those two reference points together then, we can say that this majestic woman represents the entire people of God through all ages. The people of Israel in the Old Testament through whom the Messiah came, and the church in the New Testament, those who believe in God's Messiah. Verse 3, we're told, then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon. And we don't need to guess the identity of this great red dragon because a little later on in verse 9 we are told the dragon, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. His seven heads and seven crowns, possibly a blasphemous attempt to imitate the sovereignty and the royalty of Christ, the Lamb, remember who in chapter 5 is said to have seven horns and seven eyes, in Scripture, horns always refer to strength, and this dragon has ten horns, immense power, so powerful that with just a flick of his tail, he can sweep a third of the stars from the sky. But the vision moves from this frightening picture to a grotesque picture as we see what this dragon does. Verse 4, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. That is a satanic effort to prevent God's Messiah, the Savior of the world, from coming into the world and completing his mission. Think of King Herod giving the sickening and appalling order to kill off all the babies in Bethlehem, two years old or younger, at that first Christmas. But Satan fails in his attempt. As soon as her child is born, he is snatched up to God and to his throne. The vision moves so quickly from Jesus' birth to his ascension to the throne of God because Jesus was born to be king. And when does Jesus ascend the throne? The startling answer is actually when he was on the cross. In John chapter 12, Jesus says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Uh, lifted up refers to being hung on a cross, but the word also means exalted, glorified. Jesus' greatest exaltation is on the cross. 
Well, having escaped the dragon, we read in verse 6 that the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God. And we'll come back to the desert in a moment because that is where scene three takes us. That's what scene three of the vision is all about. Well, let's move to the second scene, scene two of this vision, which moves to war in heaven before then coming back to the woman in the desert. And this movement between the two settings, between the desert and heaven and the desert again, suggests that scene two doesn't take place after scene one, but rather at the same time as scene one. We've seen this before in the book of Revelation. We have the coming of Jesus into the world and his death on this cross described from an earthly perspective in scene one, and now they are described from the perspective of heaven. Hopefully that'll become a bit clearer as we go along. But verse 7, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. This scene pictures the events of that first Good Friday from the perspective of heaven in terms of a great battle. That explains why it's Michael and the angels who are fighting the dragon. Why isn't Jesus fighting them? Where is he? He's on the cross. Notice, by the way, that the opposite of Satan, then, is not God. It's Michael. Satan is a created spiritual being, and Michael is a created spiritual being. Satan doesn't have the same power and knowledge and eternity as God. Michael is his opponent. And Jesus' death on the cross is the event that allows Michael and his angels to defeat Satan in heaven, and Satan loses his place in the heavenly court. This vision tells us in picture form what Paul writes to us in Colossians chapter 2, that Jesus, having disarmed the powers and the authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The word Satan means accuser. Here in verse 11, we read that Satan is the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night. Uh, Satan acts as a prosecuting attorney in heaven, accusing God's people. In the book of Job, for example, there he is, accusing Job of only worshipping God for what he can get out of it. Or in the book of Zechariah, we read how he accuses the high priest Joshua of being too filthy and sinful to serve God. As one writer puts it, as long as there are human sinners to accuse, Satan's presence in heaven must be tolerated because God himself recognizes the justice of what Satan is saying. But what happens on the cross? There is a substitution. Jesus stands in for us as our representative. He has no sin of his own. Rather, he takes our sin upon himself, and God's justice and judgment are carried out on him. The wages of sin is death. Jesus dies in our place. He dies for you. He dies for me. And so Jesus wins our case for us. Satan stands before God and he accuses us. And judgment is handed down from God. We are declared not guilty. Not because we're without sin, 
but because Jesus has already paid our price. And payment for a crime cannot be demanded a second time. We are declared not guilty. And so Satan, having lost his case, also loses his job. There's no room any longer for him as an accuser in heaven because Romans chapter 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus stands at the right hand of God and says, the price is paid and Satan is hurled down to earth. Let me maybe just pause at this point and ask you, do you know that for yourself? (laughs) Do you know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Have you experienced it and are you living it? And if not, please come and chat to someone after the service. There's some little books at the back there called Four Steps to Making Peace with God. Uh, Please make sure that you understand the fact that Jesus died for you and has taken your sin. I want to assure you it would be the best Mother's Day for you ever if you were to discover that for the first time. Scene three of this vision, we move back to the woman, the dragon, and the rest of the woman's children. From verse 13, when the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she'd be taken care of for a time, time and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. We said in an earlier sermon that 1,260 days is the same as three and a half years, which is the same as time one year times two years and half a time, half a year. It's a symbolic number representing the entire period uh, between Jesus' coming to earth and his final return at the end of time. And what John is telling us is that that entire period is characterized by war and rage from Satan on the one hand, and yet God's ultimate care and protection on the other hand. I don't think we're supposed to make a one-to-one correlation with all of this imagery. The imagery comes from the Old Testament and Israel's time in the desert. So, for example, the woman being given the wings of an eagle, it's a clear reference to Exodus chapter 19, where God says to his people, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, the desert might not sound like a particularly attractive place for us city dwellers, but, you know, Israel always looked back on their desert experience with great fondness and nostalgia and thankfulness. It was a harsh environment, but there had been an immediacy, a closeness of the presence of God that just wasn't there in the rest of their history. In the desert, God had led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Each day he'd prepared manna for them to eat. He ensured that their clothes and sandals did not wear out. It was in the desert that they were closest to God. And now John takes that image and he applies it to the church of his day 
and the persecuted church of all ages. And the idea is that, yes, while indeed there is persecution and suffering, even death, yet ultimately and eternally those folk are safe with God. And even in the midst of persecution, people draw near to God in a way that would not be true had they not gone through that persecution. So we've had a look at this great war against God and his people. We've done so from the perspective of the earth and the perspective of heaven. But let's look at the explanation of this vision and its application to our lives. That's found in verses 10 to 12. As I said in the beginning, uh, John is wanting his readers to know that there's a spiritual battle taking place. During World War II in England, there was a little phrase that was used among civilians. If there was ever a complaint about food shortages, if people were unguarded in their conversations about allied troop movements, if they were careless with their blackout curtains or with using unnecessary resources, the comment would come, don't you know there's a war on? And, you know, again and again in the New Testament, the call comes to Christians. Don't you know there's a war on? We're called on to be watchful and alert because of this war. So, for example, 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter writes, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You have an enemy who wants to take you out. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your children. He wants to destroy your grandchildren. He only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And if we're not aware of that, then we're defeated already. There are three things that John wants us to know about this spiritual battle. First, John wants us to know that actually the war has been won. Verse 10, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him. As we've seen on the cross, Jesus defeated Satan and we too share in his victory. Richard Buse was a pastor at All Souls in London, and he wrote this. This has immense repercussions for our whole outlook as Christians. It isn't that one day we may win, it's that at the cross we won. We don't work and witness towards victory in our world today. We work and witness from the position of victory already secured. Hence the certainty of the past tense in verse 11. They overcame, overcame, because we now have a stake in Christ's victory. He says, I once took part in a tennis team competition. Our team came up against the ultimate winners in the semifinals. But the winning team only had one good player among them. And they won the entire competition on the strength of this one player who was already an international it seemed ironic when the shiny trophy was handed over to the winning team who included the pathetic second pair who hadn't won a set in the entire competition. But they got the trophy. They won too. 
Jesus has won the war, and you and I share in his victory. However, second, while the war has been won, a fierce battle continues. How many of you know about the Battle of the Bulge, uh, by which I'm not talking about our weekly battle with weight gain, I'm talking about World War II <laughs> and the battle known as the Battle of the Bulge. But by December 1945, uh, it was clear to anyone that Hitler had lost the war. A huge Russian army was advancing from the east. The Allies had landed 1.1 million men on the beaches of Normandy. Anyone could see that the war was over. And yet on the 16th of December, the Germans started a new offensive on the Belgian front, the Battle of the Bulge. It was the last outbreak of Hitler's wrath. He knew he was defeated, so he poured out his wrath, and another million and a half men were killed. And the same is taking place right now in the spiritual realm. Verse 12. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows his time is short. Satan will do all he can to take down as many people as possible. And yet... As Daryl Johnson points out, the suffering of the church in the world is not a sign of Satan's victory. It is a sign of his realization of defeat. Third, if there is a war that has been won, but a battle that continues, how do we overcome? How do you and I share in Christ's victory? The answer is there in verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So number one, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. That is on the basis of the blood of the Lamb. Some people speak about the blood of Jesus as if it was some sort of magic formula that you have to apply in order to achieve something. But no, we overcome on the basis of what has already been achieved by the blood of the Lamb. It means that when Satan gets up to his old tricks and tries to discourage us, reminds us of our guilt, says to us, how can a sinner like you approach God? We overcome by reminding ourselves and God that we dare to stand in his presence on the basis of what Christ has done for us. We remind ourselves of the words of Romans chapter 8. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God himself who declares us not guilty. Who then would condemn us? Certainly not Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also praying for us. We overcome by what Jesus has done. Number two, they overcame him by the word of their testimony. And that doesn't mean that they gave their testimonies a lot. It means that they gave testimony to the saving work of Jesus. In other words, they proclaimed the gospel message. We overcome Satan not through power, not through by, by getting into political position, by getting into the top place in the office and legislating spirituality. We overcome Satan by sharing the good news of Jesus. 
There is place for Christians to be involved in political work and agitation. But if you do all of the agitation and you never proclaim the gospel, you've lost. How do Christians in Iran win? There's been more people turning to Christ in, in Iran in the last 20 years than have in the last thousand. How do they win? They can't march for religious freedom. They can't even stand on the street corners and demand a bill of rights. They preach the gospel and they are imprisoned and they are killed and yet they overcome. We overcome Satan by proclaiming the gospel. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And then number three, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They overcame by a simple willingness to die. This verse is extremely challenging to our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, as we heard last week. The application of this verse is quite literal in places like Afghanistan and North Korea and Somalia and Iran. Perhaps one day we too might face death for our loyalty to Christ. Perhaps. But you know, there's a more immediate application of this verse to us right here and now. In his commentary on this passage, the Scottish minister, William Barclay, writes this. For us, this is not necessarily a matter of dying for the faith. It is a matter of setting loyalty to Jesus before safety and security and the comfortable way. For us, this is not necessarily a matter of dying for the faith. It's a matter of setting loyalty to Jesus Christ before safety and security and the comfortable way. Here is a dramatic truth for life, that every time we choose the right when we might have chosen the wrong, every time we choose to suffer rather than to be disloyal, it is the defeat of Satan. So where does our loyalty lie today? Are we prepared to put Christ above our family, above our friends, above our job, above our wealth, above our desires? Are we prepared to say along with the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain? Our time is gone. But as we go out into this new week, let's do so with our eyes wide open to the spiritual reality of what is going on behind the events of our world. There is a battle going on. Satan is furious because Jesus has won the war on the cross and now his time is short. You and I are called to overcome him on the basis of what Jesus has already done for us, by the word of our testimony, faithfully sharing the gospel of Jesus in this week that lies ahead, and by not being frightened in any way by those who oppose us, willing to make any sacrifice, because Jesus takes first place in our lives. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, this wonderful passage that tells us that you have done everything on the cross to bring us to yourself. 
that you, Lord Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become your righteousness and that your Father might declare over our lives not guilty. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And Father, I pray for any here this morning who are hearing that message for the very first time, and I ask that you give them the courage to cry out from their hearts and to say, yes, Lord Jesus, I accept what you've done for me. But Lord, for those of us who do know and love you, we ask that you wouldn't allow the curtain of this world to be pulled down over our eyes, that we wouldn't love this life so much that we would neglect an eternity, a heaven and a hell and a gospel, a good news of Jesus Christ. We ask that this week we would proclaim it faithfully and boldly as we should, that when we have the opportunity to speak to a neighbor or a work colleague, that we wouldn't shrink back, but that we would speak the Bible verse, share the difference that you've made in our lives, tell people there is a Savior. Lord, no matter what it might cost us, we ask that you'd give us the courage to do that, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.